Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. April Tayak, thanks for being here for this episode of Keywords in Play. Can you introduce yourself in your own words? I'm April Tayak, a postdoctoral researcher at Aalto University in Finland. Most of my work at the moment is concerned with understanding player experience in some way and the ways that theory can inform our views about uh, how games can support or facilitate different types of experiences. I'm also the Vice President of Digger Australia and write a regular column about Australian game production for Metro Magazine. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about the paper that we're going to be talking about um, today and your co-author as well? So uh, my co-author, Elisa McClough, is uh, my supervisor here at Alto. A lot of her work actually is the kinds of stuff that we end up kind of critiquing in this paper. Some of her work is on like experiences of reflection or meaning with technology use, or things like that. Um, but the, the paper that we're discussing is called Off-Peak, an Examination of Ordinary Player Experience. And it's uh, broadly about the ways that we kind of conceptualize player experience as extraordinary, typically, in uh, human-computer interaction games research, specifically HCI. A lot of the regular kind of daily experiences with games are nothing like these kinds of um, extreme kind of, uh, well, mostly positive, is it's usually conceptualized as. Um, experiences just like flow uh, most of the time when we sit down to play a game it, it's really nothing like that it's it's kind of i mean it's mundane right it's something that people do every day it's part of their routine so that's kind of what we're getting at yeah just digging down a bit more into this reconceptualization of player experience that you're discussing in the paper it kind of challenges ideas, as you've said, that have been important in quantitative study in fields such as HGI, human-computer interactions, consumer research, and game studies. Right. So, well, as I said, like most of what we do at the moment in HCI uh, in particular, which is where I come from, um, you know, we're mostly talking about like all the different kind of exciting ways that Games influence people's lives and are really important and, uh, you know, have massive effects on people, which has never really felt kind of true to my own experiences with games. So uh, part of what we wanted to do with this work was just to kind of highlight how limited those kinds of perspectives can be. And of course, you know, uh, concepts like flow and, you know, extreme kind of positive emotion, joy, whatever, can be useful for games research, right? And have been useful. But 
focusing only on these kinds of extreme experiences, these peak experiences, makes it harder to explain why people play things like walking simulators, for example, or even, you know, uh, more conventional games like Fortnite. Uh, like if you're playing the same thing every day uh, or over a period of weeks, months, you know, years in many cases, a game like Destiny 2 that kind of relies on these kinds of seasonal updates. Like there's something there that is not explained by these kinds of extraordinary experiences, you know, and, and flow by definition, for example, is supposed to be this kind of special and unusual kind of experience. So it's really incompatible with these long-term uh, service games and things like that. So in HCI, uh, at least, we've staked a lot of the value of studying games on concepts like flow, um, concepts we've imported from other more established fields, and this idea that video games are particularly good at eliciting these experiences, uh, which also affects the ways that we talk about things like games for learning uh, or other kind of more applied areas of games research. So flow or, you know, as I said, this kind of optimal experience uh, is, is another way of putting it. It came from a researcher called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who started studying it in the 1970s. He was a psychologist who kind of looked at different kinds of activities performed by people who were uh, reasonably skilled uh, things like rock climbing or I think surgery, you know, like kind of challenging activities that are, you know, not too challenging. Um, you know, they have a, a good challenge skill balance, as it were. And there's a whole heap of other things that are involved in the kind of experience flow, like uh, merging of action and awareness. So basically, you don't necessarily think about what you're doing, you just kind of, you're in the moment and you're doing it and you're only really paying attention to the task at hand and you're immersed in the activity and uh, self-consciousness kind of falls away. It's supposed to mostly happen to people who have trained in an activity for relatively long periods of time and Although Csikszentmihalyi never really was interested in video games, he did say that play was one of the things that could kind of reliably elicit flow. So games researchers have kind of taken that and written with it to some extent. Awesome. Thank you. So let's move to the question of methods, like, uh, you know, what you did to undertake the studies. So you discuss a bit of a, uh, what you call a methodological bias, where studies in HCI, consumer research and game studies that are based around these peak or optimal experiences, they tend to produce measures in which bigger numbers suggest a, and I'm using scare quotes here, a better experience. Are there any kind of like constructs or studies that you see as particularly exemplary of this? And how might you suggest that researchers can think about reorienting their study designs and hypotheses in light of your argument? So the funny thing is that it's not just these kinds of like optimal experience studies. It's everything. 
it's so pervasive that it's basically true of every study and every kind of uh, experiential construct that we have to work with, you know, whether it's enjoyment or competence or positive emotion or negative emotion. And maybe that's not so obvious, right? But uh, negative emotions tend to be more memorable and, you know, uh, arguably potentially, I guess, because I'm not sure anyone's really shown it properly, uh, meaningful. So it's not just enjoyment uh, where this shows up or flow or whatever, right? But because when we compare, especially in HCI, when we compare to games, uh, to prototypes, whatever it is, um, and we run, you know, some statistical analysis uh, the way we determine which one is better is the one, you know, with the higher self-report ratings generally, right? Like, um, you know, it would be pretty unusual for someone to say, a, for, well, for a paper to conclude um, that one prototype was better because participants felt less competent after playing it or something, you know? Like, that's a pretty contrived example, but, like, it kind of gets the point across. And of course, there are times where this kind of bias, what we've identified as bias, um, makes sense, right? Like if you're testing variations of, um, I don't know, Ratchet and Clank or something, more enjoyment or positive feelings are probably what you want, right? But uh, I do think it's a mistake for that to be the default approach to thinking about what uh, good, and now I'm using scare quotes, player experience is in terms of how study designs might change there's a few things so some of this might just involve reorienting uh studies to be more about how player experience changes over time because then you've got uh like each player is their own control basically so you can just look at changes rather than differences between people necessarily it might also just involve collecting data other than uh, self-report, like survey measures, right? So post-play interviews, behavioral measures, telemetry, observational uh, measures. There's all sorts of ways that we can get around this issue. And those kinds of measures and you know, study designs, I guess, have their own issues and require a lot more effort, typically. You know, there's a reason that self-report measures are so prominent in games research, or at least in more HCI-based games research, though I've seen a bit more in game studies recently as well. Uh, but measuring at, like, multiple time points can tell us way more about players' experience with a game and whether that maps to some intended experience than just a, a post-play questionnaire. You've made me think that a lot of these measures are probably used in playtesting in a certain kind of way as well. So on the kind of production side, uh, but yeah, that's getting a bit outside of the, the realm of the paper to speculate on that kind of stuff. So let's kind of like walk through the four key aspects of ordinary player experience that you identify uh, in the study. So familiarity, emotional moderation, co-attention, and being abstractly memorable. Let's go through each of those. So in terms of like familiarity, what do you mean by that? Familiarity is kind of the precondition for something becoming more ordinary or mundane. Um, and there are 
you know, all sorts of ways that a game can become more familiar, whether that's, you know, playing the game directly or other games in the genre um, or looking at how uh, representation can kind of clue us into how the game world operates. Um, because, you know, every aspect of design has a basis in the outside world, right? Like everything comes from somewhere else. I also think there's just kind of an intuition about how games work in general that people kind of develop when they play games regularly. A lot of game design it borrows ideas from other games. You know, it's unfortunate that that kind of like general game expertise is kind of hard to measure. I don't think we have good ways of understanding game knowledge, for lack of a better term. Moderate emotion is pretty straightforward, I think, uh, though I should probably clarify that the meaning of moderate here uh, is closer to something like mild than average. This was surprisingly hard to name, just because there aren't many English words for, like, small or slight or, like, gentle that don't have negative connotations. But a lot of the time, less intense emotions are considered a sign of disinterest, right? That they can just as easily relate to a desire for a low-stress environment, right? So moderate emotions develop through familiarity or um, habituation, guests becoming accustomed to a particular game or genre. Like when I'm playing through a JRPG, I, you know, I don't feel any sense of accomplishment when I'm in a random battle, right? Uh, or if I'm playing a first-person shooter, I guess, um, you know, after a while I stop feeling tense whenever I see someone run around the corner. Co-attentiveness is kind of meant to highlight that when a game is familiar, people can often play when they're doing something else. Uh, whether that's having a conversation or keeping an eye on dinner or whatever. But it's not like task switching or multitasking. It's more that um, playing the game has become second nature, right? You've got the muscle memory, uh, the core loop, it's, you know, staying within your expectations. Um, and so... As a result, you can pay attention to more of the world around you uh, without kind of losing focus on either the game or whatever else you're doing. You can do them simultaneously without any reduction of effort. So it's, you know, it's, it's really more that what I would consider like the scene of play kind of expands to include more of what's around you, more than kind of task switching. Abstract memory is all about this idea that we can remember parts of our experiences, but we still know that there are gaps in our memory of what happened. So it's kind of more like a gloss. And so this factor uh, kind of follows from work in psychology that relates memory, attention, and emotion. Um, so when a game requires less mental effort, uh, when you're familiar, uh, and when it doesn't provoke strong emotions, uh, your memories of the game are less distinct. But uh, I think it would be a mistake to say this is necessarily a bad thing, right? 
it's a little bit obscure, but there are some really nice payoffs in um, Alpha Protocol where, you know, in a conversation, it will rely on you having pretty bad memory of, of like, what someone has said five, ten lines before, right? And I think some Quantic Dream games do this. I vaguely remember Fahrenheit doing this, where it, the game asks you to remember something that was said either in a previous conversation or in, like, earlier in the same conversation. And if you were only kind of half paying attention, if your memory of what happened was not very good, then it pays off really well and it, you kind of panic a little bit. So it really is kind of all about taking a broader and, you know, ideally less value-laden view of what good player experience can be. I think that brings us to the question of, like, takeaways for folks outside of academia, because obviously the paper is kind of taking aim at a tendency around study design methodology that might be a bit inside baseball for, you know, academics. But you've touched on some of the questions about um, what these insights might mean for wider audiences, such as developers, players, uh, punters, I guess you could say. Like, what do you think uh, are the insights that come out of this paper for that wider kind of audience? Um, good question. So, I mean, besides academics, like, I think the primary audience for this paper is going to be game developers, right? I did have a couple of people, when I tweeted about this paper, say that they, you know, that we had kind of described their, their own experiences playing games pretty accurately. So that was, you know, nice to hear. It's also nice to hear that people had read through the paper and that my writing is not entirely unintelligible <laughs> to a, like a, a wider audience. Um, the paper is also open access, by the way, so anyone can get it. But, you know, even when I say like the main audience for this paper, besides academics, might be developers, that's tricky, right? Because, you know, I'm, I don't make games. Um, and it's kind of hard to gauge sometimes what people are interested in, especially since, you know, COVID has meant that I haven't been able to really go to any, you know, social events for developers, whereas that would have been something, well, I mean, that was something that I did a lot more in Australia. But to, I guess, put all that aside, I guess, um, on a basic level, I think the paper is helpful for prompting re-evaluation of what people like about games, especially now where like live service games are becoming more common and more popular and more profitable. You know, I think ordinary experience can help explain what people want or why people want it um, about these games that are being played over long periods of time. And to some extent, the same could be said for service design more broadly. So for indie studios, I guess, without dedicated user experience stuff, I think there's value in drawing attention to more varied experiences and thinking more about the value structures that um, kind of structure the ways that we think and talk about games and design. 
like unpacking just came out not long ago and seems to be doing really well. And I'm glad, right? I don't want to generalize too much based on one game, right? But I think there's more room for different types of games than we might otherwise expect. Like even games that on the face of it seem completely mundane. So hopefully the paper is useful for explaining some of that appeal. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, April. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the DIGRA archives at digra.org.